Well, turn with me to Genesis 35 on page 29 in your Red Pew Bible. Stupid is as stupid does. My mama always said, life was like a box of chocolates. Run, Forrest! Now, if that last one didn't ring a bell, you surely were born in the 2000s and something, and you have a lot of catching up to do on your classic movies. You need to go watch some TV this afternoon. But I need to admit, I can remember watching Forrest Gump as a teenager and thinking, eh, not bad. Though a little bit long and in need of more action. Hey, what can I say? I was a teenage boy. Well, I I tracked with the basic story and I thought it was a decent movie and even obviously remember some iconic lines. My parents thought it was an incredible movie. And since the movie won a laundry list of awards, my parents must have known a few things that I didn't. In fact, as I've grown older, I keep keep stumbling upon this inconvenient truth. My parents knew a lot of things that I didn't when I was a teenage boy. But in this case, what did they know that, that I didn't? Well, in a short, in one word, they knew history. They had an understanding, even an ex- experiential understanding of the American historical narrative that Forrest was, was living through in the film. I understood the basics of the plot, no doubt, but they understood the larger significance of it all. They understood how it fit into the bigger American story. And so it is with the story of Joseph. Many of us, like me with Forrest Gump, can't help but appreciate the micro story of Joseph. The betrayal of his brothers, the moral lessons, and the character of Joseph, they all grab our attention. And that's right, and it's good, and it should do that. But if we don't understand how Joseph's story fits into God's bigger story, I think we find ourselves like me after watching Forrest Gump. We're left with some cool one-liners, memories of certain scenes, but we don't see the bigger significance. So as we open our summer series on Joseph, we begin at what might feel like an odd place. Genesis 35, in a scene about not Joseph, but his father Jacob. As Jacob has this encounter with God. In Genesis 35, this morning we'll see four biblical patterns that all look back at earlier in the story while also looking forward to the Joseph narrative and even beyond. So four biblical patterns. The first pattern is God calls some unlikely suspects. Look at verse one. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Here God tells Jacob to go to the place where he had appeared to him years before when he first spoke to him, and that was when he was on the run from his own brother. Now, if this is your first encounter with the story of Jacob, or it's 
maybe, uh, probably for most of you, it's just a little foggy in your mind. That last verse, that last part of verse one, cues us into the fact that this family is dysfunctional. Dysfunctional with a capital D. Now, I know that the last two years of politics and pandemics have made for, well, likely some rather uncomfortable family moments for many of us. When you're trapped inside with anybody for as long as we have, well, we're all bound to have our moments, right? But I, I'm, maybe in a kind of weird way, I, I want to offer some encouragement from this family's dysfunction to you this morning. You're not alone. And my guess is that in your family, it hasn't gotten to the Esau Jacob level quite yet. Earlier in Genesis, we're told these two brothers were fighting since the womb. As Esau was coming out, Jacob grabbed him by the heel as if to say, no, 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 I want to be first. Here's some brothers who love to win. I can sympathize with this. Hence, in the story here, they they give him the name Jacob, which means grabs the heel, but proverbially in Hebrew, this means something like schemer or trickster. And it seems Jacob did his best to live up to this name. Let me give you just some snapshots from Jacob's life. Jacob, Jacob tricked Esau of his birthright by selling his famous brother stew, which speaks to some of the kind of impulsiveness of Esau, but also speaks to this kind of trickster nature of Jacob. Jacob, with the help of his mother, who, by the way, wasn't afraid to p- play favorites, lied to his elderly father multiple times straight to his face in order to steal his father's blessing from his brother. Esau was furious and planned to murder Jacob, but his mom gets wind of that and he sends him on his way, so he's on, his, on, on the run from his brother. And God, even here, reminds Jacob of that. But the sinful dysfunction doesn't stop here. In fact, we could keep going. I just want to give you a, a little bit more. Jacob finds himself in the story married to two sisters. How this happened in the story, well, is a story for another day. But young men, that's never a good idea. Do not put that on your to-do list, okay? That's why we have to be careful with how we read the Old Testament stories. Uh, His wives are at war with one another. They're having him sleep with his servants in a race to get more children, and Jacob just goes along with it. So if you've come here and you think things are messy in your family, I've got some kind of good news for you. In fact, I've got some really good news for you. You're not disqualified from grace. You and your family aren't disqualified. God is clearly not afraid of your messiness. Jacob himself, we see in this narrative that he was a conniving self-reliant manipulator. He was always planning, always looking for an angle to get ahead, willing when necessary to bend the truth, no, even beyond that, to just straight up lie. 
Jacob got things done by relying on himself, his own ingenuity, his own ideas, rather than God. He, He got really good at looking out for himself, but this meant he was always looking over his shoulder. Always jockeying for position. There is a lesson here. If you lust for control, you will eventually end up being controlled by your lust. And so while things often seemed to work out for Jacob, his self-reliance led to strife, family dysfunction, and exhaustion. And then we get this other reference, skip down to verse 5 in our passage. When Jacob obeys God and goes to Bethel, God, we're told, protects him from the cities around him because of what just happened in 34, the chapter previous to this. Dinah, his daughter, was abused by the native Canaanites, and his son Levi and Simeon tricked the men of the city of Shechem into being circumcised so that while they were in pain, they could go in and in an act of disproportional retribution, murder all the males of the city. Now again, this, if you're following the narrative, this shouldn't be all that surprising. Jacob's sons were watching him. <laughs> they, they learned how to trick. They learned how to manipulate. They learned how to get things done from their father. Our kids are always watching us. Jacob's family had this sinful pattern of trusting in themselves and their own ingenuity and taking things into their own hands. Of course, this is nothing new to the story in Genesis. In the primeval sin in the garden, Adam and Eve took things into their own hands, trusting in themselves rather than trusting in God and his promises. This is what pride does. And from Genesis, and from Genesis 3 on, it will lead to pain and death over and over again. And as we enter the story of Joseph this summer, we will see more of this family dysfunction, lies, jealousy, pride. This is ugly stuff. We're meant to see it. And yet, don't miss this. These are the people God has chosen to work through. Genesis begins this pattern, but we see it carried on throughout the biblical story. Jesus comes for social outcasts, the prostitutes, the traitors, the sinners. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in no uncertain terms that we were children of wrath, dead in our sins and our transgressions, wallowing in our own selfishness. The first step in the Christian life and the necessary, the necessary daily step of the Christian life is to confess that you, that none of us are in God's family because we deserve to be here. We're all unlikely suspects. Point number two, it's the second pattern. God meets his people where we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. Yes, Jacob was a schemer. He was a guy who looked out for himself, and that should leave us shaking our heads, but, but God meets 
Jacob where he's at. This is what he does, again, throughout as we look back the story of Genesis. He meets Abraham amidst the paganism and error, and he calls him out. He meets Isaac where he's at, despite how Isaac repeats, again, we see this pattern in Genesis, he repeats the sin of his father, and he cowardly tells the Philistines that his wife, Rebekah, was his sister, handing her over in order to protect himself. And yet God still meets him where he's at. God still keeps his promises. God is still faithful. He does, but he doesn't simply meet his people where we are at. He transforms his people. He changes us. We see this with Jacob. Look at verses two through four. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them underneath the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Here we see real change in Jacob. There's this desire to be pure, to put away the idols, not so that God will rescue him, but because he already has. And so too, in the story of Joseph and his family, we'll see God working in this family's life, in his descendants' lives. And he does it through their own failures, through their own dysfunction. He doesn't force them to do the evil things that we'll see happen. No, they do that on their own, but he turns the evil for good. He uses suffering to refine them. He calls them out of their selfishness and jealousy, and he makes them into something beautiful, a people through whom he will bless the world. Quite literally, we see how in the story of Joseph and his family, he uses their own evil for good to unite their family and save not only the messianic line, but the surrounding nations. God meets them where they are at, but he does not leave them where they are at. And this is what God still does. He takes chaos and he brings peace. He enters hard hearts and he makes them tender. He uses suffering to to forge courage. He meets us in our bitterness and transforms it into forgiveness. He takes the ugliness of our sin and he creates beautiful people. This is what our God does. And then he calls these changed people, he calls these these beautiful new creatures that he has made to go and do likewise to reflect him, to bring peace, to be peacemakers because he is a peacemaker, to love the unlovely, to create beauty. Yes, we're unlikely suspects, but by the grace of God, we are what we are. We are the first fruits of a new creation. The third pattern we see is God gives blessings and makes promises. Look starting in verse six. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him, 
And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam, Padan Aram and blessed him. This is not the depersonalized or aloof gods of certain ancient philosophers, nor is it the distant God of modern deism. The God of the Bible is one who speaks. And he not only speaks, he gives blessings. This is not the first time we see this in Genesis. In Genesis, after he spoke the world into existence, we see at the very first mention of humans as, as God's good creation, twice he blesses them. And this speaks to the very character of God. Why did God create to begin with? It wasn't because he needed anything. Not because he was lacking. Not because he needed a blessing. He created not to be blessed, but to bless. This is an overflow of the very character of God. Yes, we know later he brings curses and judgment, but that is only a secondary response to the sin that destroys his good creation. God is a God who creates in order to bless. And he continues to bless even after sin and rebellion has ravished the world. When God starts again with Noah after the flood, he blesses him and his family. And then God calls Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he blesses them. We see this word over and over again. This is who God is. And not only does God bless, this God blesses and he makes promises. Look at verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. Again, this is where we have to keep the big picture in mind. Fruitful and multiply, that should ring a bell. Lights should come off at that point. That was the command given to humans at the the very beginning. The promise and the blessing and the calling go together. Look at back there again at the end of verse 11. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. In order to really understand this summer's series, to understand this story of Joseph, we have to understand this covenant promise that we see here. This promise is first given to Abraham several times and then it's repeated to Isaac and now to Jacob. It wasn't just that Joseph or the, or the lives of his family are on the line in the story of Joseph. Oh, you know, it's, it's beyond that. What's on the line in the story of Joseph is the promised land. God's promise to bring a kingly line out of this family and God's promise of blessing to the to the nations. The story of Joseph shows us how God will use an unlikely, sinful people and horrible circumstances to bless the world. And finally, the fourth 
pattern we see. God gives us new names. Look back at verse 10. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now, some of, there, there might be some of you who don't really love your name. But could you imagine being Jacob and walking around with the name Trickster? And living that name out each day. That's what you were known as. That was your primary identity. I'm guessing, truth be told, most of us can't really imagine that. But I'm wagering, in a way that's kind of analogous, I'm analogous, I'm wagering most of us know what it look, looks like to, to live out an unstable identity. I'm betting... Some of you feel a shame or a pride based on the label you've been given. Such that the primary way you characterize yourself or the primary way that others have labeled you is by some kind of party, political party affiliation or your singleness or by a job title or lack thereof of the successes or failures of your children, of your habitual virtues as you perceive them or vices. The result is that you either walk around with your head down in shame or with a chest-beating self-righteous pride. Sometimes both in the same day. Anytime our fundamental identity is based in something other than God, things go wrong. But here Jacob is told, he will be called Israel. Which means his name is no longer trickster. His identity is now ultimately defined by his relationship to his God. God changes names. He changes identities. In the New Testament, he changes Simon's name to Peter. Despite knowing that Peter would not always be a rock, Jesus knew how he would use Peter's failures to make him into one. And so knowing that he will, knowing that he will one day become this, he gives him a new name and with it a new identity that Peter will learn to live into. And so too with us. In Christ we have new names adopted as sons and daughters of the king. And yet there are identities we have to learn to live into. I just finished reading to my kids a, a series of books called The Wing Feathers. In the story, one of the characters who also happens to be royalty, though he doesn't know that at first, this character has been supernaturally turned into a dangerous beast called a fang. In the story up to this point, the only option for the good guys is to try to kill or run from the beast. That's what, you know, they're beasts, they're scary looking creatures. But in this case, their own brother, their own son, their grandson has become a fang, has become a monster. What do you do 
if your own family member becomes a beast? Or what do you do when they just act beastly? Well, in the story, they refuse to run from him. Nor will they condemn him. After all, he's family. So instead, they keep reminding him of his true name. They know he will lash out. They know this is going to be a painful process. But they keep reminding him of his true identity. He's not a beast. He's the king. He's the heir. He has to learn to live out his true name. We all forget from time to time our true name. And the only way back out of this darkness of our false names is to remind each other of our true identity. Our job as Christians isn't to turn our backs on each other when we begin to act like beasts. After all, we're family. It's not an option. Our job, our calling, is to remind each other Christ died to give us new names. He died to give you a new name. We are God's adopted sons. We are God's adopted daughters. Kings and queens of a new creation. We need each other. We need each other. Because we forget. So we need each other to, rem- to continue to remind each other of our true identity. Let's pray. Lord, we confess we cling to other identities. We cling to other names. We trust our own ways. As much as we're appalled at times reading this family's dysfunction, as we think back to snapshots in our life, we know that we have our own dysfunction. We have our own sin. And Lord, we know that that sin has been paid for and we have new identities in your son. And may we live this out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.